COVID exposure warning. The cases involve people uh, in Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraserville through the contact tracing process. The latest infection numbers and concerns about a flight from Kelowna. Charges in a triple homicide. Our investigators did tremendous work uh, with the help of our partners. The tragic twist in a house fire that was no accident. And the uproar over camping in city parks. There's a number of concerns around the way it's being proposed and the implementation. Why the Vancouver Park Board has a long night ahead. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. BC has made great strides in the COVID-19 pandemic, but today's numbers reveal there is still critical work to be done. Here's a look at our three-day total. We have 62 new cases in BC. That includes from Friday afternoon through to this morning. Our total number of cases for BC now stands at 3,115. Sadly, we've had two more deaths, both at Holy Family Hospital, and that brings the number of people who died of COVID-19 complications in BC to 189. There are 14 people in hospital, five in ICU. 2,718 people are considered recovered, which leaves us with 208 active cases. A total of 17 COVID-19 cases are now linked to Kelowna's community exposure after eight people initially tested positive for the virus. While others may have been exposed at a popular restaurant and spin studio, health officials say the cases primarily stem from lower mainland young people partying in resorts. Aaron MacArthur reports. The COVID exposure in Kelowna continues to spread well beyond the Okanagan Valley. An Air Canada flight has been linked to a positive test. Anyone on board AC flight 8421 July 6th are being asked to monitor for symptoms. No indication that case is linked to the others in Kelowna. But the city is now one of the key hotspots in BC. We're trying to determine how many exactly um, are linked to these, how many are uh, potentially secondary cases. Over the weekend, Interior Health expanded the warnings in Kelowna. People who were at Cactus Club between the 3rd and 6th of July and anyone at Pace Spin Studio on the 2nd, 4th or 7th through 9th needs to monitor for symptoms. Yeah, you get kind of a pit in your stomach going, oh gosh, what's going to happen? I won't say that I was surprised. I mean, I was surprised that it was in our studio. The two businesses, though, secondary infection points. The primary concern remains two resorts where people were attending private parties. Why is it that Interior Health is only naming two businesses? There should be a list of hundreds of businesses that these people went to. Interior Health says it's not singling out the business. Instead, trying to get a message out that everyone who was at those parties is at risk. In some cases, complete strangers to one another. Contact tracing that many random people is challenging. It strengthens the advice that we consistently give about, uh, especially about people coming together and gathering. The numbers of people infected with COVID-19 during phase three was always going to be higher. More travel means more contacts. Questions now being asked about the tipping point. When does the uptick in cases become a return to more stringent restrictions on people's movement? Aaron MacArthur, Global News.
And Interior Health has now issued an isolation order for Crazy Cherry Fruit Company in Oliver after two positive COVID-19 cases. The family-owned Okanagan Valley Farm must remain closed to visitors and its 45 employees, including 36 temporary foreign workers, are not to leave while further testing is done. Both cases are self-isolating. Keith Aldrey joins us live now with more on the numbers and the important role that contact tracing is playing in all of this. Keith? Yeah, we're certainly seeing contract uh, tracing play out the way it should. They found 17 cases associated with those Kelowna gatherings. That's 13 confirmed and four presumptive cases, and we're likely to find more. The way it works is it started with a test positive in Metro Vancouver. Uh, that they were contacted by the contact tracers, and there's several hundred of them uh, working for public health, and are asked questions like, where have you been? Who have you met? And it's not just about your family. It's where you've traveled. And when it quickly became apparent, this person had been in Kelowna and talking to their friends who had also been in, in Kelowna, they were able to zero in on those gatherings in those two resorts very quickly and determine we had a community uh, exposure event. Adrian Dix, the health minister, talking about it today, likening it basically to a bit of detective work. This is the process, this is the work, almost the detective work of, uh, of public health and our outstanding uh, health team in Interior Health and in the other health authorities who pursue cases identify cases and identify contacts and that's what's happened in this case so indeed uh, the cases involve people uh, in Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraserville through the contact tracing process um, obviously was linked to uh, to Kelowna and uh, to the community there. All right, Keith, Aaron uh, mentioned one flight of concern in his story just a couple of minutes mm -hmm. ago, but now I understand there are more flights into YVR being flagged. Yeah, the BC Centre for Disease Control is now posting on its website uh, all flights that they think or have determined have had uh, cases of COVID-19 on board. So we talked about the July 6th flight from Kelowna to Vancouver. That's been flagged earlier. Centre for Disease Control has now flagged three other trips. These are all international ones. July 6th from D Dallas, July 7th from San Francisco, and another domestic one, July uh, 8th from Montreal. Now, if you arrive internationally, you're supposed to self-isolate for 14 days anyways. But those people uh, on that Montreal flight, not required to self-isolate, but now that they've been exposed to that, uh, they might want to check out that website to determine what their next course of action should be. All right, thanks for that, Keith. Well, first it was the federal government announcing a massive budget deficit due to unforeseen spending during the coronavirus crisis. Tomorrow, the province will release its numbers, and all indications are they'll be devastating. As Richard Zussman reports, the pandemic has left government economies on life support. We know BC's economy is in bad shape. On Tuesday, we'll find out how bad. We all know the profound impact that COVID-19 pandemic has had around the globe, across our country, and in fact, right here in British Columbia. The province set to release an economic update for the first time since the pandemic started. Finance Minister Carol James is forecasting provincial deficits for at least the next four years. And it could be even longer. I wish I had a crystal ball uh, that could really tell us where things are going. There's so many pieces, so many risks ahead. Economists themselves are struggling to understand the impact. Deloitte, a global accounting and consulting firm, expects the BC economy to contract by around 5%. 
while the Business Council of BC is anticipating the provincial economy will shrink by 7.8%. Economic forecasters have a wide range of what they anticipate could be coming. The question many will be asking is what will this mean for them? Will it mean service cuts or tax increases? We know unemployment is sitting at a staggering 13% and the BC Liberals say the province needs a clear economic recovery plan. There are a lot of small businesses that are about to fail this fall. We've got families who are desperately trying to figure out what to do when school goes back because they don't know which days will be school days. And that's going to hurt working women really hard because they won't have a predictable opportunity to work. It's a plan the government says will come potentially this fall after ongoing public consultation. The economic update will take place at 11.30 Tuesday morning. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The current U.S.-Canada border closure agreement expires next week and is widely expected to be extended again. But a growing list of British Columbians have signed a petition in hopes they will be permitted to cross over. Paul Johnson has more on why they feel their travel is essential. I mean, we locked the door on a Sunday back in early March and thinking we'd be back the following weekend. Uh, we have not been back yet. Dean Carmen owns a property just south of the border he'd normally be spending a lot of time at. While he accepts he won't be enjoying his Birch Bay sunsets anytime soon, he'd like for there to be a way to close his property down for the long haul. Not for entertainment or travel purposes or any kind of non-essential service, but to actually go visit our properties, which have been abandoned for about four months now. Whether it's because they'd be turned back by the Americans or they're not able to block off two weeks of their lives to self-isolate on return. There are many thousands of Canadians whose lives straddle the border and whose anxiety builds with each report out of the U.S. Whether it's the record-breaking caseloads right now in the Sunbelt states or the latest from a president who has many wondering whether his priority is defeating the virus or defeating his political enemies. Until we see better results in jurisdictions in the United States, I think uh, the vast majority of people want us to keep those borders closed. Given the situation in the U.S. right now, no sane politician is going to be talking about opening the border. But these people are wondering, given the success we've had in allowing essential workers to cross, could there be something that allows people to safely travel to take care of business they believe is essential to them? Carmen's hope would be to make a short dash to his American place, shut down utilities and lock up, then come back. He started an online petition calling for a workaround for people who own property in the U.S. So far, they've got 800 signatures. Nobody expected the border to be closed this long, um, or at all for that matter. And uh, so we've got these properties that were abandoned back in March, and uh, we've not had any ability to go back and, and care for those properties. Paul Johnson, Global News. After a four-month shutdown, film and TV productions are once again rolling in Hollywood North. Earlier this month, WorkSafe BC gave the industry the green light to restart with strict COVID screening and protocols in place. Brad McLeod shows us tonight why the ongoing closure of the U.S. border is a boost in some ways for the local movie business. The film and television industry slowly starting over. Those sets will look slightly different. No, not the Christmas lights, but the masks, hand-washing stations, and signage are the new norms. It's the first day of filming for our first film out of the gate. Front Street Pictures putting about 90 local people back to work for the Hallmark Movie of the Week, 
deliver by Christmas, being shot in Oak Bay. They have medics on site, making sure that everybody follows the protocol. The company choosing checkpoints. Everyone must answer questions, then are given bracelets to show they are clear to be on set. Safety protocols in BC's flattened curve, now a selling feature. Come see us, we're really safe. Shoot here, we're really safe. We haven't decided on any of those taglines. We're working on that now. Deliver by Christmas, quick to get cameras rolling, because they cast Canadians. American actors must quarantine for two weeks before they can work with a visa. And it's a potential boon for Canadian performers. Surprisingly a good time because there's more opportunity for people who are local to actually get hired rather than them defaulting to somebody from the U.S. The South Island Film Commission says it was about to be a record-breaking year for filming hours. But COVID cut that. We've also seen 24... Uh, television and uh, Movie of the Week productions returned to British Columbia. There was a spike, lots of commercials and things picking back up again, but now it's sort of going back down into a dip. I don't know if that's from the uncertainty in the U.S. Although four island productions are set to return by end of summer or early fall. So I think we're going to do okay. Won't be as good as it was. Brad McLeod, Global News, Oak Bay. After more than a year and a half of homeless camps shifting from park to park in Vancouver, the park board is set to discuss a bylaw amendment that would allow overnight camping in public parks with some restrictions. Grace Key is live outside the park board with more. And Grace, some of the campers say this bylaw wouldn't work for them. Yeah, one of the biggest issues they have is just to be clearing out uh, during the daytime. So as you can imagine, just clearing everything out, especially for those who do work, can be certainly a challenge. So today, some of the homeless folks just at Strathcona Park did come up with their own list of demands, including 10,000 uh, units of social housing a year. We demand a safe, high-quality supply of opiates, stimulants, tobacco, alcohol. These are the list of demands people at the homeless encampment at Vancouver Strathcona Park are making. As well as feminine hygiene products, pregnancy tests and birth control, diapers and baby wipes. They're speaking out against a park board proposal that would have them pack up during the day and prevent structures to be set up in certain areas, including 25 meters within a playground and within a sports field and picnic area. If this bylaw is passed, what does that mean? I pack all my belongings and go sit on Hastings, not go to work because I got nobody to help me watch my stuff. We've also had sports practices, kids playing, people enjoying the park throughout without any impediment through, from us. Park visitors say there's no easy answer to the city's homeless issue. I think yeah. they have a right to be somewhere, uh, but I don't think they... Personally, I don't enjoy seeing them just crop up in neighbourhoods in parks because I don't think it's fair to... The other residents, I mean, they're all paying taxes and and maybe, you know, something's happening. They have kids. They don't want to see, find needles. They don't want to find drugs, etc. A B.C. Supreme Court ruled that prohibiting people from sleeping in city parks would be a charter right violation due to the lack of adequate shelter space. The Union Gospel Mission has had to turn away people this summer. Normally in July, uh, it's one of our slowest periods. But right now, we are full virtually every night. And we've, in fact, had to turn away close to 150 people or on, a, on 150 occasions just in the last six weeks. Campers are looking for a long-term solution, saying SROs aren't an option. We were homeless in May and we got a place in June at an SRO and it was the worst three weeks of our life.
All right, Grace, when might we know which way the park board voted on this? Well, we're just in front of their offices right now where a special meeting is now underway. Now, I'm being told that there is a very long list of speakers. So this could quite very well carry over to tomorrow. Sophie? All right. We'll be following it. Grace, thank you. It's an epic fall from grace. Noted B.C. businessman and philanthropist David Sadu will be sentenced for his part in the college admissions scandal. Years of deception and cheating laid out in the court documents in just over a minute. The southern hemisphere city overrun with sea foam. That's later on the news hour. And saving baby Lucy, the staggering amount raised for the miracle drug that might just do the trick. Coming up later. Right now, though, the highest profile Canadian implicated in the U.S. college admissions scandal will learn his fate later this week. Court documents reveal disgraced B.C. businessman David Sadu committed fraud to secure elite college admission for his sons paying $200,000 in the scheme. Ted Chernecki has more on the plea deal. BC philanthropist and now fraudster David Sadu joins the ranks of the fallen in the wide-reaching U.S. college admission scandal. He's agreed to plead guilty in exchange for a 90-day prison sentence, a year of supervision, and a $250,000 fine. He'll formally be sentenced later this week and is expected to turn himself into Canadian authorities to serve his time here. The intangibles are going to hurt. Uh, he's going to lose, lost the Order of British Columbia. There's the public shaming, and uh, he's going to have his name wiped, literally, off uh, UBC buildings. U.S. District Court documents show that in December 2011, Sadu sends Rick Singer, the mastermind behind this scandal, $100,000. Singer then hires Mark Riddell, a then 28-year-old who flies from his home in Florida to Vancouver and writes the SAT exam for Dylan Sadu. The night is beginning now. A year later, another hundred grand is sent, and Riddell goes to California and writes the sat for Jordan Sidhu, the younger son. This time, Riddell scored a near-perfect 2,280 on the exam. This falsified score was submitted to numerous elite educational institutions in the United States. Berkeley. And Sadhu's son ultimately gained admission to and enrolled at the University of California at Berkeley, near his older brother. By cheating on his son's admissions test and fabricating his application essay, Sadhu deprived a deserving student of the opportunity to attend that elite school. In his defense, 18 letters were submitted by prominent leaders in B.C., including former Attorney General Wally Opel, who said he's known Sadhu for 35 years, and aside from these charges, he is a person of impeccable character. Others, like Amrik Virk, former Mountie and MLA, says he's personally seen how this case has negatively affected Sadhu both mentally and physically. Ted Chernacki, Global News. A glider pilot is lucky to be alive tonight after crashing just outside of Invermere on Friday. We're just getting our first look at the rugged mountainside where the aircraft went down. The photos taken by Columbia Valley Search and Rescue. The pilot, a Kelowna man in his 70s, is being treated for critical injuries. And RCMP are now hoping witnesses will come forward. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada is also investigating. Just ahead, a house fire that turned out to be far more sinister. And today, the case took a startling turn. Also tonight, an appeal for witnesses in a shocking hit and run. 
final clearing stages of a two-car crash here on the Burnaby-Coquitlam border. It's eastbound on Highway 1 just before Brunette in the right lane. The damage is done, though. Traffic is backed up solid from past Kensington on the approach. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Auto Glass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 on the Burnaby-Coquitlam border. Vernon RCMP are trying to identify the suspects in a hit-and-run attack on a cyclist that was caught on camera and a warning the video will be disturbing to some viewers. It happened on March 24th. Police say the 47-year-old victim was riding his bike in the 2000 block of 43rd Street in Vernon when he had an argument with three men inside a white Jeep Cherokee. As he rode away, the driver ran into him, knocking him to the ground. Two men then got out of the SUV and allegedly assaulted the cyclist. RCMP have seized the Jeep, but they are still trying to identify the driver and two passengers. A 24-year-old man has now been charged with killing his sibling, his mother, and her boyfriend. The bodies of all three victims were discovered after fire tore through the family's Langley home back on June 13th. 24-year-old Kia Ibrahimian is now facing three charges of second-degree murder. Sarah McDonald reports. One month since three family members were discovered dead under suspicious circumstances after this house fire in Langley. Sky went black, um, the smoke just started billowing in, and it literally took minutes to be fully engulfed. We now know all of their deaths were allegedly no accident. We believe all four lived in that home at the time of the fire. A fourth relative, rescued uninjured from the fast-moving flames, has been arrested and charged. This case, now considered a triple homicide. A 24-year-old male by the name of Kia Ibrahimian was charged with three counts of second-degree murder, one count each for each of the lives taken at that home. The suspect now stands accused in the deaths of his own mother, Tatiana Baziar, and her partner, Francesco Zangrilli, 50 and 46 years old respectively, and his 23-year-old sibling, Medea Befren Ebrahimian, who was laid to rest earlier this month. Their father left mourning the loss of one child, allegedly at the hands of the other. Nothing broke me, but this is... This is different. This is really broken. And nobody deserves that like that. If they know what investigators are not revealing any potential motive or cause or mechanism of death, including if the fire itself was fatal or if flames broke out after the victims were already deceased. We don't believe the three dead uh, were, uh, were there long. Investigators will say there is no secondary crime scene, aside from this rental house, where the family, who was not known to police, had lived for years. Now a charred reminder of tragedy and horrific criminality, allegedly at the hands of the victim's brother and son, who's scheduled to appear in court next Monday. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Up ahead, baby Lucy finds out she has a lot of friends. Good job. The amazing global effort to pay for the miracle drug that could save her life. And new shutdowns in the United States as COVID cases continue to surge. 
Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6 and 980 CKNW, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, presented in partnership with BCLC. With every play, you're making BC even better. Here we are over at the Alex Fraser Bridge, and traffic is in pretty decent shape in both directions tonight. Keep in mind, though, overnight maintenance causes lane closures in both directions between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Sussex Insurance are your auto plan experts for insurance renewals, changes, or other ICBC transactions all from home. Just visit sussexinsurance.com. I'm Trish Wilson in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Heavy rain and strong winds have been battering parts of South Africa, leaving some areas flooded and others doused in sea foam. While this spectacle has been drawing crowds, the gale force winds are considered dangerous and people in the area are being urged to stay indoors. U.S. infectious disease chief Dr. Anthony Fauci is being targeted by the Trump administration as COVID-19 cases continue to surge in many states. The White House increasingly critical of Dr. Fauci, even though new polling shows Fauci with a higher approval rating for his handling of the pandemic than Trump. 40 states across America are seeing a daily increase in COVID-19 infections. In Florida, there were 12,000 alone on Monday. Something needs to be done and something needs to be done now. Parts of the state are now rolling back reopening and putting curfews in place. Hospitals from the Carolinas to California are running out of space. We're crossing or approaching hospital surge capacity day after day as a matter of course. PPE in some states is also drying up. Now, as more Americans look to the medical community for answers, one of the leading voices in Washington is being silenced. This is a White House that is committed to self-preservation, and that's it. The Trump administration is attacking its own top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has been undercutting the president's rosy picture of this pandemic. The notion that there's opposition research and that there's Fauci versus the president couldn't be further from the truth. Fauci has been critical of becoming complacent, but his comments early on in the pandemic about masks and transmission are what the White House is now holding against him. This is a virus that none of us had had any experience with, including Dr. Fauci. Health experts say as the science changed, so too did the messaging, leading to mask mandates and enhanced social distancing efforts. The coordinated campaign to discredit Dr. Fauci comes as Americans increasingly disapprove of how the Trump administration is handling the situation. 67% of Americans trust Dr. Fauci compared to 26% who trust the president. Democrats are also more likely to trust Fauci than Republicans. When we discredit scientists, we undercut our own ability to be able to deal with the virus. With an uncertain future lying ahead, silencing the medical messenger could have fatal results. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. Hollywood actress Kelly Preston has lost her two-year battle with breast cancer. Jerry, there is a sensitivity thing that some people have. I don't have it. I don't Preston is best known for her roles in Jerry Maguire and for the love of the game. Husband John Travolta confirmed the news on Instagram saying, quote, she fought a courageous fight with the love and support of so many. The couple had been married for 28 years and had three children together. Kelly Preston was just 57 years old. And a sad update in the search for actress Naya Rivera. Officials now confirming a body pulled from Lake Peru this morning is that of the actress. Best known for her role on Glee, she disappeared last Wednesday 
after renting a pontoon boat with her four-year-old son. When she failed to return the boat, a search was launched and her four-year-old son was found asleep on the vessel, which was drifting in the lake. Authorities say her death appears to have been a tragic accident. Washington's NFL franchise has announced it is retiring the Redskins name and plans to introduce a new name soon. Owner Dan Snyder says he's working with the coaching staff to develop a new name that will, quote, enhance the standing of our proud franchise. Snyder was facing mounting pressure to drop the name after prominent sponsors, including FedEx, who has naming rights for the team's stadium, demanded that it be changed. Meantime, SFU students are taking another step forward in their fight to change their team name. The Simon Fraser Student Society Council is demanding the name be changed from the clan. It's a tribute to the university's Scottish heritage, but dozens of student-athletes say it's often seen as a reference to the Ku Klux Klan. An online petition to scrap the name has received nearly 10,000 signatures. In Health Matters tonight, Health Minister Adrian Dix announced 495 new long-term care beds for the Interior Health Authority. There are currently 6,000 long-term care beds in the region. Dix says BC's Interior has a growing seniors population, and in only five years, there will be nearly 30% more people over the age of 75 in that region. We also have a broader question of improving care standards and ensuring that all of us in the future have access to the care we need when we need it. That's not just about long-term care, of course. It's about home support. It's about respite care. It's about supports in communities. It's about adult day programs. In short, and what is fundamental to me, is not that just that we have long-term care homes like these new 495 we're going to have, that all of those beds are going to be single bedrooms, that all of those beds are going to meet provincial standards for staffing. All of those things are important. Well, since we first brought you the story of baby Lucy, born in Vancouver with a degenerative nerve disease, word has spread around the globe. Her family's desperate plea for a one-time $3 million gene therapy to save her life has strangers opening up their hearts and their wallets. Linda Aylesworth caught up with Van Dormals. I think that's funny. Multiple times a day, three-month-old Lucy Van Dormal undergoes physiotherapy to treat her ever-weakening and tightening muscles. We um, have her kind of grasp onto our finger, and then we rotate it inwards and stretch. Lucy was born with a severe form of the degenerative neuromuscular disease known as SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, and was given a life expectancy of two years. Let's get this leg. Go up and over. We first met Lucy just over a week ago. Her parents had started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for a new drug called Zolgensma, which replaces the missing gene that causes SMA, halting the disease in its tracks. Within seven days, almost to the hour of going with going launching the campaign, we were at a million dollars, which is phenomenal. It's a huge success. We took a moment to celebrate that, but uh, we definitely have not taken our foot off the pedal. That's because the treatment costs nearly three million dollars, making it the most expensive drug in the world. So what did her devoted dad do? I went and looked through online and tried to find reporters that have a massive reach 
And I was able to get in connection with Ala from CNN. And so it was that Lucy's plight became known throughout the U.S. and around the globe. Sending love and care from Minnesota. The U.S. is rooting for you, little girl. Go, Lucy, go. Sending all of our love from NYC. By this afternoon, the new Life for Lucy GoFundMe total was hovering near $1.7 million, which means they've passed the halfway mark. And we're so amazed and, and, you know, overwhelmed with the amount of support, really, that we're seeing. And it makes us feel so loved, and we know we're going to get there. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. No reason to cry. She's got one point seven one two. $1,712,000 raised so far. There you go. Every day counts, too. Let's see mm -hmm. that total tick up. All right, still to come, COVID couldn't keep them apart. There's no way to explain to him that this, why this is happening. A woman living up to her vow of staying together in sickness and in health. And in sports, what GM Jim Benning says about those Brock Besser trade rumors swirling around as the Canucks get back on the ice. Give a shout out, tag posts with hashtag BC Healthcare Heroes or email BC Healthcare Heroes at globalnews.ca to share with Global News. BC Healthcare Heroes in partnership with Fortis BC, caring for the BC communities where we live and work. Looking to beat the heat now that it's finally here. Mm -hmm. Vancouver's three main outdoor pools are now open with COVID-19 precautions in place. Kitts Pool, Second Beach and New Brighton all reopened today. Change rooms and lockers are closed, but washrooms at least are open. You can swim laps for up to 45 minutes and take part in recreational swimming for up to 90 minutes. Visitors are expected to maintain two meters distance on the deck and stay five meters apart in the swim lanes from others who aren't in their bubble. I said, I love this pool. I've been coming here for 35 years and today is like winning the lottery. I got here about 20 minutes early and just got in line and then they showed them the ticket and then they give you a wristband. And uh, no, it was very straightforward. Yeah, you just get in the lineup and then come in. Space is limited and you'll need to book a time slot in advance. You can do so online every morning at 9.30 for the following day. Yesterday, demand was so high, the website crashed. Today was an appropriate day to reopen outdoor pools, Yvonne. <laughs> Look at that beautiful sky behind you. Absolutely, and set that alarm for 9.30 if you want to get in a swim once again. You'll want to because we are going to continue to see a similar weather picture over the next couple of days. There's one slight blip in the forecast, and I'll show you more in just a moment, but it's fantastic out there. Temperatures are sitting at 19. We were into the low 20s for most areas. We've got a light westerly wind at 11 kilometers per hour. Highs today away from the water and in the interior. A Soyuz climbing up to 27 degrees, and it was pleasant today. Areas across the central interior in Bridge George getting up to 20. Overnight tonight, just a few clouds in the mix will dip down to 11 degrees. Sunshine for tomorrow range between 21 by the water. Areas away from the water getting up to 25 and with the Humidex inland feeling closer to 27 for our Tuesday. Now here's a quick glance at the future cast. So all areas, especially along the southern half of the province, remaining dry but we are tracking the next weather maker and that's pushing in along the north coast as early as the morning and
moving over the next couple of days. That same system is going to push in across the central interior with an increase in cloud cover and a chance of showers potentially towards the evening. Now for tomorrow, the north coast, 15 and up to 30 millimeters for most areas. But by Wednesday, we are looking of upwards of 30 millimeters. And in the long range, it's really on Wednesday that we'll still see a dry day. And on Thursday, we could see more cloud cover with a chance of showers. Heaviest rainfall on the target will be along the north coast. Central interior could see some showers moving in towards the evening. Much of the southern interior, fantastic. It is going to be a warm one. And then all areas across the south coast, we are looking at warm temperatures. Away from the water, we'll get up to 26 degrees. It's our long-range forecast. It's just on Thursday that we could see a chance of showers. By Friday and leading in towards Saturday, we're back into some sunshine. Tonight's weather window, a fantastic shot of the rainbow taken yesterday in Kamloops. Thank you so much, Lindsay. And some angry-looking skies behind mm-hmm. it. All right, thank you, Yvonne. Good day, good couple of days for uh, the boy to be in sailing school. Thanks very much for that, Yvonne. Let's check in on what's happening in hockey right now with Squire. And I know, it's real. The uh, Canucks started summer camp today. <laughs> and as you can see, part of the plan for their series against Minnesota is squiggly and dotted lines. We'll talk to the Canucks and clear up the uh, Brock Besser rumor coming up in sports. Also tonight, a COVID love story and a woman willing to do just about anything to be closer to her partner in life. What's going on over there? I'm not, I'm not sure whether Squire... He, he ran or something. I had yeah. to run upstairs for something. Are you out of breath? Well, not exactly. I mean, okay, I'm not in the greatest cardiovascular <laughs> for this job, but I'm okay. I can think I can do it. Uh, For the uh, second time this season, because it still is this season, uh, the Canucks are holding training camp. Michael Furland didn't get on the ice today. The Canucks didn't say why he wasn't there, and they don't really have to say why. All they said was he's unfit to play. But he was skating with teammates last week at those informal workouts. Jim Benning said he should be back at some point. As for the rest of the team, it was the start of summer hockey. Um, part of our meeting today. We, we addressed a few things in the meeting today, and part of it was the new norm. What is the new normal? Um, things are different. Uh, you know, obviously with COVID, uh, the time of year. Um, Drawing up a hockey plan in July during a pandemic after a four month pause to the NHL season, definitely not normal. Travis Green and the Canucks on the ice for their first full day of an abbreviated training camp. We're getting up to speed and getting those game legs back is priority number one. It doesn't feel like a new season because you got, we got every player in the room. You know, it feels more of a continuation from last year, which it is. So we got the same group as we, we battled with all year and, and everybody's excited to, to uh, achieve something big. And, you know, uh, everybody is, is going to be ready to go when, when the puck drops. And the puck drops for real in less than three weeks. That doesn't leave a lot of time to work on your team structure when it comes to the type of game you'll execute come the playoffs. It's why Travis Green and the Canucks will go from training camp mode to playing full-on scrimmages perhaps as soon as Tuesday. You know, it's playoff time. We're, we're in the playoffs now, so it's uh, the regular season's done, and it's, uh, it's at the beginning of something new. We just had a, a bit of a longer break in between, but... Um, chance to win and uh you know i guess even for myself personally you know i'm 31 years old you don't don't know how many chances you're going to get again to try to win a cup and um i'm gonna make sure i'm ready to uh kind of give my all to try to help you guys um 
like I said, it's an opportunity, and you got to kind of look at it like that. For day one of training camp, everybody was on the ice except Michael Furland and Cole Lind. Furland classified as unfit to play. That's all the Canucks would say. Lind was just late getting into town, which may have not been a bad thing, seeing how first day of training camp ended with the dreaded bag skate. Well, that felt uh, just as awful as it usually does, but uh, all in all, guys look pretty good. I think uh, uh, sometimes you get in the first day, you feel okay. Sometimes you don't feel good. I thought today everyone looked pretty sharp, so I was uh, pretty happy with the way it went. Man. Looks like they're going to need a spatula to get J.T. Miller off the ice. <laughs> um, last week, there were rumors the Canucks were thinking about trading Brock Besser after this season. Now, before Jim Benning answers that, let's just point out that for the Canucks to eventually sign Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, the new deals after next season, possibly re-sign Jacob Markstrom after this season and a few others, someone's got to go. Someone who makes a decent salary. And it can't be Louis Erickson because nobody's going to want him. But even with that scenario, Jim Benning said Besser is not on the trading block. Yeah, there's, that's not true. It's uh, uh, Somebody made that up. We haven't had any sort of conversations internally about that, and I've had zero conversations with other teams about moving Brock Besser. He's one of our good young players. Um, you know, we, we're excited when we got a chance to draft him. Um, he's been a big part of our team here as we... You know, as we move forward, uh, I don't know where this stuff comes from, but there's no truth to it. Whitecaps are less than two days away from playing their first game of the MLS tournament. Wednesday night, they face San Jose. These games are all over the road as far as time is concerned. The game against San Jose is 9 Eastern. The game against Seattle on Sunday is 10.30 at night Eastern time. And then the game against Chicago on July 23rd is 9 in the morning Eastern time. It's part soccer tournament and part sleep deprivation experiment. All right, Manchester United, Southampton today, EPL. Man U was down 1-0. Then Anthony Martial made it 2-1. That's a nice goal. But just before this game ended, Michael Obafemi would tie it for Southampton. 2-2, the final between those two. Well, the Washington Redskins are no more. The nickname is gone after 87 years, gone because sponsors put financial pressure on the team, which had always pushed back against changing the nickname and the logo. They will keep the same color scheme, but they don't have a replacement nickname just yet, but there are rumors that it will have a military connotation to it. And there you go. Eager to see what they come up with. Thanks, Squire. Now here's Andrua with a preview of Global News at 11. Thanks, Chris. We are watching the Vancouver Park Board meeting closely as they prepare to vote on a bylaw amendment to address homeless campers. The proposed change would legalize tents overnight but require the homeless to move on in the morning. With a long list of people expected to present this evening, the meeting could continue until tomorrow, but we will have the very latest at 11. And a socially distant rally to keep the RCMP in Surrey is about to kick off. We'll have that story when you join us tonight at 11. Chris, Sophie. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Anne. Tonight's healthcare hero is just ahead, plus a woman who became a frontline hero during the pandemic, just so that she could see her husband face to face. That's next. With an uptick in the COVID-19 numbers yet again today in BC, this is a good reminder of the importance of staying the course. With that in mind, it's time to honor another one of your nominations for BC's healthcare hero. Tonight's comes from Kathleen and Shelley. They wanted to recognize their friend, Stacey Berriger. For the past 12 years, 
Stacy has had a wonderful career as a health care assistant at Royal Columbian Hospital in the ICU. Her friends say throughout COVID, Stacy devotes all of her time to care for patients in dire need of help. Stacy's ability to truly care for her patients and her calm demeanor is just a small testament to this health care hero who is working today, by the way, on her birthday. So happy birthday, Stacy. Stacy, your wit, your humor, your ability to stand up for healthcare like you do is why Kathleen and Shelley say you are their healthcare hero. We want to thank you for all that you're doing to help BC during this challenging time, and we hope you have an amazing birthday. If you have a BC healthcare hero you'd like to see recognized, send an email to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Don't forget to send us a few pictures and some details about why they are your hero, and we just might feature them next. We hear a lot of stories about heroism. We also hear a lot of heartbreaking stories over and over about how the COVID-19 pandemic has really separated people from their loved ones, especially those in care homes. But after 114 days separated from her husband, a Florida woman decided to do whatever it took to be closer to him. Kristen Dahlgren shows us how she did it. For 114 days, you see I'm this was as close as Mary Daniel and her husband Steve could get. I'm going to come give you a hug real soon. Steve is in a nursing home with early onset Alzheimer's. Visitors not allowed, except through a window. There's no way to explain to him that this, why this is happening and how long is this going to happen. And so he cried. Mary felt like she was breaking her vow to be by his side. I promised him I would be there and I wasn't. Then she learned the nursing home needed a dishwasher. And dishwasher it is, you know, whatever. Where you've got available, I'll take. What was that moment like when you got to see him in person? I knocked on his door. I mean, obviously, he's not expecting me. And Mary was the first thing he said and came over and gave me. We had just had a really great hug. We both started crying. She continues to get tested for COVID and has to work hard. But she shows up with a smile and a message for her husband. He is deeply loved and that he will never be alone. And that's the best gift that I can give him for the rest of his life. A lesson in true love. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News. A lot of awes around right now. We are not worthy. All right, uh, Yvonne, a final word on the weather, which hopefully summer sticks this time. Yeah, for the next couple of days, it's fantastic. It'll be warm once again tomorrow, especially away from the water. Check out Wednesday, up to 28 degrees. We are going to see a few scattered showers. It'll be short-lived just on Thursday, and looks like we'll get back into some dry conditions and sunshine for both Friday and Saturday. Good weather to get outside and bang some pots and pans again for those healthcare heroes. All right, thanks very much, you guys. Have a great night, and thanks for watching. Good night, all.